<laughs> well, um, this morning, I, I really was praying for you, and um, yeah, and I just got this real sense that you are here because you love God, and that you're ready to go deeper, and I really, um, I want to talk to you on a level this morning of leaders of the church, of people who are invested, of who are ready to take the call, that next step, whatever it looks like, but that God has gathered here as the next generation of church leaders. And I really feel that that's true. Um, you might not call yourself a leader. You might con- not conceive of yourself as a leader. But I really believe that um, you're here for a purpose. And that the more that you follow that prompting, the more that you realise God's um, heart for the world, and the, the less likely you are to get away with being in the back row and doing as little as possible, right? So I guess in some ways, like, I want to go um, quite deep quickly, which is, you know, like, we kind of um, roll with laughter and then we, like, cry. So there's no kind of, like, middle ground for us. <laughs> so I'm sorry about all those people who, like, you know, a little bit of, you know, <laughs> entry, um, warm-up, you know, small talk and before we get to the deep stuff. I'm just going to go there. Um, so was anyone not here yesterday? Great. So... I kind of explained that when I was 16, I had a little bizarre thing happen where I wrote a song that got recorded at Hillsong, a Hillsong album right when it was kind of becoming um, famous in America, and um, I unintentionally became a Christian celebrity at the age of 16, which um, was something that is, I just say quite humorously, but obviously people loved the song and really connected to it, which was an honour for me as a 16-year-old to be given that privilege and um, to be able to lead the church in song was a huge privilege. But I really want to share a little bit of what that came out of in my life. Because I think sometimes you can see these songs and you see the people on the platform and you think, like, they have it all together and I'm just the secondary Christian. Or you think, you know, maybe I could eventually be as holy as them. But for me, my story has kind of um, been something that I guess I've learnt a lot from and realised that maybe there's a little bit of an artificial barrier between um, the Christians that you think are the holy Christians and then where you see yourself. Um, That might not be true, but I guarantee that it's true for some people you're at church with. So for me personally, I grew up in a really turbulent home. I grew up in a home where I wasn't really sure whether I was going to um, come home to a happy, nice environment after school or one where I would potentially be thrown against walls. I, um, was, I, I dealt with a very volatile anger in my home. And at the same time, we were the model family at my church. My mother's a psychologist. She's actually a really, really good psychologist, which just goes to show that, you know, not the people who look like they have everything, everything perfect are not always the ones that do. But for me, what that meant was that there were times in my life when I would grab my Bible at the age of 12, 13, 14, and I would walk out to the park And I would just literally sit there with it. And it was my lifeline. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that when you're just reading the scripture and suddenly something you you read, that's it. And that's something that you hold on to all week. Um, I was so desperate for God to speak into um, into that environment and for me to be able to navigate this. Because I think realizing um. Being in this environment, I realized that it was very easy for me to play 
a particular role and to be um, a victim that needed rescue. When I wanted a family, when I wanted cohesion, when I wanted to be able to look you know, my father in the eyes and say, I love you and mean it. And to be able to see God work restoration in our life. It wasn't about the good guys and the bad guys. It wasn't as easy as the black and white binaries that we sometimes paint. It was, God, would you come and would you renew this completely? Would you come and would you make this something that is completely new? Would you restore? Not would you rescue me out of this and, you know, with a band-aid, but would you completely and utterly renew this situation? And, you know, from that is where I started to sing songs where I started to sing out these scriptures that God had given me, that I found lines in the Bible that just made sense and that I clung on to for a week and it got me through that week and then I would start to sing them. And I would start to sing out and I would piece them together into little melodies and things that helped me to embody that in my life, to be the change. And, you know, in that situation, like, um, you know, it was really funny to have this song resonate with my church. And I don't know if you've ever, so many of you are songwriters, but to be able to craft something that the community can gather around and pray together was beautiful. And I think, you know, there was something about it. I couldn't put my experience into words. I couldn't, I mean, you know, there are times when you can be honest, and, but our society tends to have a little bit of this, like, false expectation you know you don't really know whether you're safe to say things or you're not and oftentimes I felt like church was the least safe place was the place that I couldn't say hey actually I'm really scared to go home could you pray with me (laughs) but we could sing this song and God could come in that moment and I could know that I was safe and be with God you know it was really bizarre because um, it's now it's an old song, you know, but it was really bizarre that it got onto the top 100 songs in the US, right? So you've got to imagine me, a 17-year-old who's still trying to work all this stuff out. And God did come in and, you know, moved powerfully. Um, but at this point, the journey wasn't yet pieced together. But this song managed to get onto the top 100 of CCLI in the US, right? Which means that thousands of Christians all over the US were singing this song. Really bizarre. So they, um, these US executives, like music executives, flew over to Australia to award all of the Hillsong songwriters who'd written a, hun- a top 100 CCLI song. And they gave us this paperweight. It's really funny to me. Um, so I'm 17, right, and I get called to this meeting, like, with these executives. <laughs> and they, um, you know, and we still have the paperweight somewhere. <laughs> but, and they call, you know, they call us out by name and they say, thank you so much for your gift to the church. And they hand us this paperweight. And at this point, I still can't really articulate it all. What? You get going, it's great. What? Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Did you all notice that? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. It's kind of busted. Oh, I busted it? No, no, no. I'm going to clip it on like this. All right. I'm going to pull like Outback Job. Oh, there you go. The boy from Dubbo sells it. (laughs) It's an Outback Job. Yeah. (laughs) Life hack. (laughs) 
Awesome. All right. <laughs> See, this is the thing. Like, I, we're either laughing or like crying. Anyway, um, <laughs> just how it works for us. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, I'd not be used to it. it. Might feel like a roller coaster, but it's all right. It's all good. Um, yeah. So anyway, so we're at this meeting, and they give us this paperweight. And for me, you know, I haven't been able to articulate what was going on in my life or in my family, but to get given this paperweight was just the bizarrest thing. But I think it, it, it taught me that deep does speak into deep. That if you are willing to lead from a place of depth, that there is resonance, that people respond to. And it's taught me so much about the way that we are vulnerable before God, that people understand vulnerability, that we know when someone is you know, not quite you know, putting on a show. There's something very um, freeing about being in, around people and around leaders that are leading out of their vulnerability. So you might think that, you know, for you it may not be, you know, that your family situation was terrible. You might have a great mum and dad and, you know, be like, that's just not an area of angst for me. Um, but there are things, there are vulnerabilities in your life that you might think of as weaknesses, but really, if they're places from which you can minister to other people, to be able to say, you know what, it's a human experience for us to feel loss and grief. Lament is something so important in the Word, and yet our society rejects it and doesn't really know how to lament, doesn't really know how to go to that deep place and to have God meet them there. You know... Um, this kind of set me on this journey, um, this music thing. I realised that there was something that could speak in this. And so, um, you know, in amongst it, I decided to pull some songs together and to go to Nashville. And um, for me, that actually wasn't a really big thing. It just kind of was like my producer was in Nashville, and so that's where I ended up going. And he was a long-term friend, and he understood um, my journey, a lot of my journey, and... Um, in the midst of that, though, I should pause and let you know that my dad came to me one day and, you know, um, he said this song actually ministered to him in a way that he could not believe. He could not believe, it, this is his words, he said he could not believe that a man as himself would be able to have the honour of standing and singing this song that had come from his daughter, sung in the services. And he said that um, he had a vision where he had a broken heart and where God showed him that his heart was broken into two pieces. And it's funny, you know, the way that God talks to us. It doesn't, you know, it's not always the most poetic, but he said that God gave him a little silk bag that he could put both parts of his heart in and pull it shut so that his heart was together. And from that moment, you know, I realised something. It, I did not want to have healing at the expense of my father. It wasn't enough for me to be saved and to lose him. But God managed it. God wove the journey together so that he was able to experience wholeness out of that moment that for us was a very horrible season of our lives, but that God truly did restore. And I think, you know, it's kind of made me aware of the power of music and um, there's lots of other mediums that you can use too, but for me it's just happened to be music. So we turned up in Nashville 
And, um, you know, I thought this was like, you know, such a step of faith for me to pull together these songs and to make them into an album. And um, I crafted the songs with some, um, like out of some experiences that I've, I'd had with people with disability. And I'd actually been able to interview a stack of people with disability and I'd realised that there were all these people who had faith experiences that were amazing but they were marginalised to the edges of our community. And so they were the ones that had this depth of relationship with God and were able to sing despite all and, you know, had managed to work out these beautiful ways of articulating it. But we weren't listening because they were the ones in the cry room. Or they weren't able to attend church on a Sunday every week because they weren't sure whether they were able to get their kids in the car and to be able to get them there because they were autistic or, um, you know, they were non-verbal um, kids. And so from these experiences, I put together these songs, travelled to Nashville, and I found myself in these studios that, um, you know, it's quite amazing. Like, David Crowder recorded a song before I got into the studio. I don't know if you know any of these names, but, like, you know, there were all these people who we see as these perfect Christians, who we kind of see as these, like, models of how we are to worship. And I, um, you know, I got to be able to record. And I realised something, you know. I realised that when you get in the studio and you've got um, a day and you've got to take six songs, <laughs> that it's not so much about, like, experiencing God in the moment. It's like, sing that line, and if you don't get it, <laughs> we're going to have to, like, you know, totally wreck the production schedule to be able to do this again. So you've got, like, one take, let's go. <laughs> and I realised that, you know, within this world of, like, you know, what... Um, is life-giving for our churches, is this um, industry at the centre of it that at times is, is really concerned with the things that are the God of our world. So efficiency, um, with production, with, you know, fame. And it, for me, it was like the veil was pulled down. And I realised that, you know, many of the communities that I loved were standing looking towards these places and these people that really had nothing life-giving to give because where God is, is in the centre of his people. God is here. And the way that we experience God is in community. And so that kind of may seem a little bit depressing, right? <laughs> like I had this experience, got to Nashville, realised, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to have to reorientate the way that I'm thinking because I really believe that there is power in 10 people sitting around the campfire and lifting up the name of Jesus. And that is where God inhabits the praise of his people, not the studios in Nashville. And there were all these people and these stories that started to come out of, you know, just the most horrific stuff in this place. Like, you know, they're in tour buses for 42 weeks of the year going from church to church leading worship. And out of it all, because they're disconnected from the community, their soul gets tighter and tighter and tighter and the vocal cords end up being I guess in a sense sacrificed to do this machine and so I walked away going wow like I mean there are beautiful Christians that are pursuing God in the midst of this but I realized we the church are orientated in a way that doesn't allow us to realize where the strength is where the depth is it's a here it's in the people of God. It's in these moments of worship. And I kept coming back to this question, what is the spirit-led life in this? 
What is the spirit-led life once you've seen past the curtain into the machine? I don't think it's just me. I think a whole generation of us is like this. Where it's, you see beyond what the marketing says to the back room and you realise, hang on a sec, what? Is that what we're doing? What is the spirit-led life once you've had that moment? I don't want a commercially driven, plastic-wrapped, barely alive life anymore. And I'm not going to give you the answer that I'm supposed to give you. The cliche, apply this, call me in the morning. <laughs> it doesn't work. What is the spirit-led life? What is the sound of the church alive in Australia? I come back to this word um, that I encountered over in um, LA, but... It's come to mean so much more to me, spirited. So often we're like looking for this spirit moment <laughs> that is like disembodied and, you know, like where we float out from our bodies and we experience God. And then we realise we're actually confined to our bodies. <laughs> Bummer! <laughs> you know, like we've had this transcendent moment and here we are again. Oh. <laughs> And actually, I've come to realise maybe God's desire is for us to live spirited lives, where we're not trying to always escape from the bodies and the realities and the mechanisms that are on earth. Maybe we're not always trying to get away from the material world. But that maybe the spirit can be within that. That it can be, we and our churches can be spirited. You know, the word spirited in the dictionary says, full of energy, enthusiasm, determination, sparkling, passionate, fiery. To be a spirited person. To have seen all of the realities and yet to allow the spirit to be within it. You know, um, it's made me ask, what quenches that fire? What makes me stop being spirited? I am quite a spirited person. <laughs> I don't always mean to be <laughs> passionate. <laughs> Just kind of rolls out. <laughs> but often, you know, I find myself in moments where it's difficult. It is difficult for me to write songs after I encounter, I encounter you know, some of the mechanisms in the, the worship industry. What makes it difficult for me is undealt with emotion. And that's, you know, this is really my tip for the journey, is that I have had to come to this realisation that I get angry when I see injustice. And instead of me getting angry, I squish it all down with these, oh, Lord, hallelujah, praise you, Lord. God, I bless you. <laughs> all of those phrases that were so life-giving then become this way of like suppressing all the anger and emotion that I'm feeling. And you know, I can't, st I can't help but think maybe that's what the enemy's intention is. It's for the very thing that was life-giving to become the very thing that stops us from getting to the presence of God. You know, that beautiful song you know, that Matt Redmond wrote, um, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. You know, it's not... 
these songs that have become these things that actually at times stop us from getting to where God would have us be. So we end up fracturing ourselves. And so the part of us that's angry or disappointed and the, and the part of us that's holding it together becomes separated, like my dad, two parts of his heart. And I believe that God wants to bring it back together. For me, what has that meant? It's meant recognising that emotion, not trying to live in this transcendent place where I'm above all feeling. <laughs> oh, Lord, you're so great. <laughs> I don't have to worry up here about how my life's going or how my family is or any of the things that really worry me. I can just worship. But then I have to deal with it on Monday. And I either have to fracture it or I have to work out a way to be spirited within it and to find God in those moments. And to rather than allowing myself to play two roles, happy Christian on a Sunday, And, oh, my gosh, God, come now on a Monday. But to somehow pull them together and to have the one life and the one heart and to allow God to have all of me. You know, the Jewish community really dealt with this through the Holocaust. It was obviously a massive issue. But within Jewish culture, there has always been this... um, Tradition, actually, of dialogue with God, of being angry with God, of taking those emotions to God instead of creating a different persona that you deal with on yourself. And then the happy Christian on a Sunday. Instead, Jewish rabbis have a tradition of making those moments worship. Bringing the anger to God. Ellie Weasel, a Holocaust survivor, says this. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of beauty is not ugliness. It's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, but indifference between life and death. Sometimes we, when we get into that fractured moment, we just work out a way to cope. And we just go, oh, you know what, I don't care. I don't care. I just, you know, I'll get through it. It's good. God's going to work it out. It's all good. Instead of really allowing ourselves to feel what it is that we're really feeling. For me, I've had a number of arguments with God, and so I thought that I would bring them to you. But with some biblical characters, so that, you know, it's not just me, actually. <laughs> it's actually in the Bible. And you may not, you know, need this. You might actually be completely fine. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but there are moments when I need to get out and stomp around a field with God. And in what I've seen over the last, you know, five years with the, you know, working with Aboriginal leaders, and what they experience. I've had to do some stomping around fields <laughs> and yelling even in order to keep myself whole, in order to keep all of me before God. Because I can so easily fracture again and play the game. But I don't think that's living. I don't think that's spirited life. 
And so here are some arguments from the Word and that I've also had to have. So maybe if you're taking notes, you know, write down the scriptures and you can go back and you can, you know, have these moments with God yourself. <laughs> but, um, but the first one is Abraham. So in Genesis 18, there's a really inter- interesting interaction between God and Abraham. And God has come to this, he's selected Abraham. And we're talking about Abraham, the hall of fame in Hebrews, Abraham. And God decides to tell Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and it says here in verse 20, 20, 21, so God's talking with him and he says, the cry of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of those cities is immense. I'm going down to see for myself if what they're doing is as bad as it sounds, then I'll know. The men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path, blocking his way. It's pretty pretty spirited, right? And Abraham confronted him. Are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? What if there are 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good with the bad and get rid of the lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I can't believe you'd do that. Kill off the good and the bad alike as if there were no difference. Doesn't the judge of all the earth judge with justice? Is that not the most... Like, I don't know about you, but do you, like, I don't know whether you get in your quiet time and you go... Does the God of the earth judge with justice? (laughs) There's been some moments recently that I've had to ask that. God, I need your answer right now. Do you or do you not? (laughs) Do what you say you do. Because I'm feeling this disconnect. You know, God answers him. And it's so interesting the way that he engages this dialogue. God said, if I find 50 decent people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the place just for them. And Abraham came back. Do I, a mere mortal, made from a handful of dirt, love this, (laughs) dare open my mouth against my master again? But what if the 50 falls short by five? Would you destroy the city because of those missing five? And God said, I won't destroy it if there are 45. And Abraham spoke again. What if you only find 40? (laughs) And God said, neither will I destroy it if for 40. And he said, Master, don't be irritated with me. I may have used that line a couple of times. <laughs> God, please don't be irritated with me, but um, what if only 30 are found? God said, no, I won't do it if I find 30. He pushed on. I know I'm trying your patience, Master, but how about for 20? I won't destroy it for 20. He wouldn't quit. Don't get angry, Master. This is the last time. What if you only come up with ten? And God said, for the sake of only ten, I won't destroy the city. 
When God finished talking with Abraham, he left and Abraham went home. You know, this is a um, really important piece within Jewish literature, this sense of dialoguing with God. And I don't know if you've ever had to come to the place where you've become an advocate on behalf of the people, where you've had to stand and represent. God, if my church doesn't get this right, will you still come? God, will you still help us to break through? God, if this people group still don't get that right, would you still do what you say you're doing? You do and spare the city. You know what? What's really interesting about this within um, the Jewish literature, Abraham stops after six times. And the big question is why? Because if he'd have kept going to five, maybe the city would have been saved. Because there weren't ten people in that city that God could find that were righteous. But there might have been five. And so within the literature, it's a massive question. Why didn't Abraham ask for five? And the the answer that many rabbis get to is that the number six is the number of men. It is incomplete. But God is the number of seven, incompleteness. And God's mercy extends to one. But our mercy doesn't always go that far. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What if he'd have kept arguing? It's not something that we have in our lyrics very often. I know I'm irritating you, God, but but maybe we need to start talking with God more honestly. The second argument that I've had to have with God is found in Genesis 32. And it's an argument that Jacob has. It's actually very strongly connected to the meaning of Israel. And it's the the moment in which God bestows the name of Israel upon Jacob. It's the emergence, in a sense, of the nation. And it says, Jacob got up during the night, took his two wives, his two women servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River in the shallow water. He took them and everything that belonged to him, And he helped them cross the river. But Jacob stayed apart by himself and a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. That's kind of the weirdest sentence ever. Don't you think? Like, Jacob stayed behind and he wrestled a man until daybreak. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, hello? (laughs) It says, when the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. Can you imagine Jacob explaining to his wife? <laughs> like, well, um, there was a guy and I just, I really wanted to wrestle him. <laughs> so I stayed behind and I wrestled him all night until daybreak and he touched my thigh and it ripped. <laughs> and the man said, let me go because dawn is breaking. Like, could you, like this is like, the, like, has he got a bit of headlock? I'm just like, this is just really... <laughs> really needs more clarity when we get to heaven, you know? I need a video. Maybe not like a short one, you know, anyway. Um, Just the highlights of the struggle. (laughs) And then he said to... uh, The the man said, let me go because, because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
He said to Jacob, what's your name? <laughs> like, you haven't introduced yourself. You just don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he said, Jacob. <laughs> then he said, your name will not be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and men are one. Jacob also asked, tell me your name. <laughs> but he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel because he said, I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. The whole thing is just really intriguing, to be honest. <laughs> I've to see God face to face and then decide to wrestle him. That's like pretty spirited. <laughs> I don't know that I would be the one, you know, doing that, but Jacob did. <laughs> You know, and there's been times in life where I haven't been sure. I don't know about you, but as a youth leader, you know, my life was all about advocating for the kids, all about standing in the gap, asking God to come and to, you know, move in these kids' lives to change something to, that we would see some breakthrough. But at the end of that season, I got to a point where I wasn't sure whether God wanted to bless me, whether I was good enough. Not Tanya the leader, not Tanya the, you know, theologian, just Tanya. And in many ways, it causes us to wrestle with God. To say, God, will you bless me? Am I enough for you, just me? And if you haven't had that argument with God, you might need to. To say, you know what, with all my roles set aside, God, can we wrestle this out? So that I know that you are for me, not just for the stuff I can do for church, not just for me when I play these, you know, roles, make everyone happy and play the Christian, but me. The third argument that I've had to have with God is seen with Moses. It's in Exodus, and Tim talked about it a little it's where Moses is being called. And I know that at times we come to the recognition that there's something more. That we're not just called for what we're doing presently. But that there's a next step. And God often tells us at the worst moments. I don't know about you, but there's been times when I'm like, yeah, I know there's more, but I'm actually quite happy. And then, whoo, I'm like, whoa, what? What do you mean? But for, for me, you know, getting an email saying, Fuller Theological Seminary would like to give you a scholarship to do a PhD, that was kind of like a little bit world-changing. Like, what? No, what? I'm, whoa. Hang on a sec. This happens to Moses. You know, Moses said, so God calls Moses, and it's a, the burning bush moment. It's very clear that there's something happening. I mean, I, I've had moments where, you know, I've, I haven't been sure, but there hasn't been a bush on fire in front of me. <laughs> you know, I think you can be pretty sure <laughs> when that happens. But Moses is so human. And when God calls Moses, he says to the Lord, My Lord, I've never been able to speak well. Not yesterday. Not the day before, and certainly not now, since you've been talking to my servant. 
That's pretty like legit, right? I've never been a good speaker. I wasn't yesterday. I'm not now. <laughs> not only does he say that, he says, I have a slow mouth and a thick tongue. That's pretty, you've thought a lot about this, if you say that to God. <laughs> and the Lord said to him, who gives people the ability to speak? Who's responsible for making them unable to speak or hard of hearing, hard of Heart of sight or blind. Isn't it I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak and I'll teach you what you should say. But Moses said, Please, Lord, just send someone else. <laughs> Have you ever said that to God? Please, Lord, just send someone else. <laughs> like, cool, yeah, I get that. I can see that, you know, what you're wanting for our community is this. Could you motivate one of the elders? <laughs> Just saying, you know, God, the pastor really should be seeing this need. <laughs> just, you know, just a little hint. <laughs> then the Lord got angry at Moses and said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak very well. He's on his way out to meet you now, and he's looking forward to seeing you. Speak to him and tell him what he's supposed to say. I'll help both of you speak. And I'll teach both of you what to do. Aaron will speak for you to the people. He'll be a spokesperson for you, and you will be like God for him. Take this shepherd rod with you too, so that you can do the signs. Well, I think that's the most funny line ever, right? It's like, like Moses gets angry, like goes, please God, could you send someone else? God goes, oh, fine, I'll send Aaron. And then he goes, but take this stick so you can do the signs. <laughs> like, what? Okay, well, I think that speaking is kind of an easier thing than turning the Nile into blood. Just saying. You know, like, I don't know that you've got the best deal here. I'd rather be the one. And my brother is going to be bringing the frogs. <laughs> like, that's me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he really got out of that easily. Like, but, you know... I, I think I've had to learn. There is always someone that's going to be better than you. In the church and in the world, you're always going to have a reason to give someone else the permission and the responsibility to do what you feel God's calling you to do. There's been so many times in my life when I've felt a spirit-led unction towards something that is not yet realised but that I can sense God moving our community toward. And I've always been able to find somebody else who can do that job. I've always been able to say, oh, you totally should do this. And I think you need to get to that point where you bring it to God and say, God, this is how I feel about it. I'm not sure if I can do it. Because I can always solve it by myself like Matt was saying, but bringing it to God and allowing it to become a dialogue is powerful. You know, the fourth argument with God is Gideon. And this is the one where he's in the thresh, on the threshing floor. He realises who he is and where he really is. Who he is and where he really is. Note the sun, it says in Judges 6, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to hide from the Midianites. The Lord's messenger appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Gideon replied to him, 
With all due respect, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his amazing works that the ancestors talked about? But now the Lord has abandoned us and allowed Midian to overpower us. The Lord turned to him and said, You have strength, so go and rescue Israel from the power of Midian. And in verse 15 it says again, Gideon says back to him, With all due respect, my Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my household. There's a point where we have to get to where we realise who we really are, who God really is and who we really are. You know, the final argument before we bring our emotions to God and say that to God that we're willing to go there is found in John 2. And it's kind of a beautiful argument, actually. It's the one where God doesn't seem to be very concerned with the practicalities of the situation around him. At a wedding in Cana. And the wedding has run out of wine. And Jesus doesn't seem to think that this is a massive issue, but Mary does. And Jesus loves Mary. And she comes to him and she says simply this, they don't have any wine. You can kind of imagine it, right? Jesus is like, okay. And he says, what does that have to do with me? (laughs) My time hasn't come yet. And she simply goes to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And walks away. (laughs) Right? You know, and I love this because it's an argument that has a posture of faith. Jesus seems to not care about the situation. There's been so many times in leadership where I've seen practical issues that need a solution now and Jesus has seemed unconcerned. And that is what prayer is for, is to bring those to Jesus. And I don't know how you need to articulate what it is that you're going through right now. I doubt that it's going to be, they don't have any wine at the wedding. <laughs> but it's going to be something that we've taught, we have been pushing down and not acknowledging. And maybe this weekend has been an opportunity for you to say to Jesus, this is my need. But I love that when she doesn't hear the response she wants, Mary simply acts in faith. (laughs) Do what he tells you to do. (laughs) There is a spiritedness about approaching God in this way. There is something that is kind of endearing to God about a person who doesn't give up, about a person that continues to push through, about a person that says, aren't you a God of justice? Aren't you a God that does miracles? God, this is our community. This is our need. And my encouragement to you this morning is to live spirited. Live in a way that brings the material and the spiritual together. Let's not be a generation of fractured people. Let's be a people who see that God 
is in and works through all of those pieces of us. You know, it might be really vulnerable to do that. And I don't know that it's going to happen right now. You know, like, I don't think you're going to be able to, like, start screaming in the middle of, like, Soul Survivor Camp. Like, how dare you, God? You know, probably not at the moment, you know. But there are moments where it needs to just be you and God and you get real. And you say, not the stuff, the script, but you pull out the stuff that's underneath all of the things that you've been pushing it down with and say, what's really on your mind? Because God wants that. I don't think God wants us to be a plastic-wrapped, packaged church, but wants us to be real. I think there's something really beautiful about the song 10,000 Reasons. And I asked him to sing it. You know, there is going to be a moment where our life is fading. We only have a short time here. And I think, you know, when I look at Abraham and the way that he petitioned God for that city, I want to be a person like that. He's prepared to stop God in his tracks and say, God, we need intervention now. I need you to show up in my community now. And I'm a little bit loath to use the word revival because it's kind of a bit marketed and weird, but like, I need God in my community. I need God to show up. I need God to be dripping from the walls and for our community, when they walk into the church, they recognize God, not the great plasma TV screen, but God. For God to be there. That's my argument with God. That's my prayer for our generation. That we would be people who really go there. I'm going to get you to sing with me. I don't do concerts. Well, you do, but... I do, but not here. <laughs> <laughs>